Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 551. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this wonderful network, go and visit their site, evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Dr. Peter Sear. Peter is a psychologist, senior member of the accredited counselors, coaches, psychotherapists, and hypnotherapists in Britain, founder of the Empathic Mindset Organization based in the UK, and as far as this talk is concerned, the author of Empathic Leadership, Lessons from Elite Sport, published by Ratledge. His book explores coaching in a number of sports, such as rugby, football, ice hockey, and lacrosse, across a variety of countries and cultures. A really interesting read. And in this conversation, we discuss how empathic leadership has become more prevalent in sports, especially in helping to manage relationships, build trust, and establish a strong line of communication. We look at the role of empathy in giving feedback, the notion of mattering and purpose for athletes, and the issue of governance and dealing with the owners. We also explore the crossovers of empathic leadership in sports into society and business, including ideas of dealing with multicultural environments, high stress, male and female differences, as well as the immensely important challenge of developing trustworthy relationships. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, go over and drop in a reading and review because that's the lifeblood of all podcasts. And then don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Dr. Peter Sear, how lovely to have you on my show. I have, I just devoured your book. It's called Empathic Leadership, Lessons from Elite Sports. And, uh, and you do indeed have a lot of lessons from a lot of sports. It's a, a real whirlwind of the world uh, and of so many different sports. A great book. I would encourage everybody to read it. But in your own words, Peter, who are you? Who am I? Um, thanks for that introduction and thanks for reading the book. Um, so I'm a psychologist. I've been studying psychology since uh, the mid 90s. Um, always been re really interested in people and behavior and why people do the things they do. Um, I based that book on my PhD, which came after doing a, a degree in psychology, a master's in human resource management and a master's in Jung and post-Jungian studies. Um, and the PhD was understanding empathic leadership in elite sport. And it was kind of a, a culmination of uh, my interest in psychology because I found that as I studied psychology from a variety of perspectives, emotions were always my sort of area of interest as, as drivers of behaviour or, or inhibitors of behaviour, perhaps. And I thought that empathy encompassed that. And so if I could study empathy within a context that I really was interested in as well, which is sport, then it would give me sort of more understanding of the human condition and perhaps prove that there are certain ways that I believe in uh, of leading people um, and human relationships, I think, is a fundamental part of that and understanding each other. 
So I wanted to explore that and see if it was occurring in, in a competitive environment because I thought if it was if it was competing if it was if it was occurring in a competitive environment like elite sport, then that would be evidence that it's something that's very important and should be explored in all arenas. So what about your interest in sport? What tell us about that? This isn't clear in the book where what sort of sportsman you are, what you like to do. Although there's a lot of rugby, so I'm guessing. No, you're wrong with the rugby. I did actually play one game for the school team at rugby, but, but that was when they were short and they just used to recruit people in from the football team. So, um, yeah, football was my sport. I was playing football from the age of four. I remember my mum lying to the sports centre locally to get me in because you had to be five and my cousin was already playing and I, I wasn't happy with that. So I managed to get in. I was, I was I, We learned a lot of skills at the local sports centre and, and that was always my preferred sort of part of the sport, the, the sort of technical, skillful side. And I played football all through my youth, every day of my life, just playing all the time. I played for my county at schools. I played for Essex County at school. I was at Watford FC as a youth player till I was about 15, 16. And I actually left there. So I'm quite proud of the fact that I didn't get released by a club. I left. <laughs> I wasn't enjoying it at the time. Um, and maybe there's, there's some something that has stayed in me that may have been something to do with why I wrote that book as well, because I, I saw a lot of people leaving as well who were really good players. And some of the people that were getting retained and sort of put in the, in the youth team weren't necessarily the best players, but they were people who just did what they were told and didn't ask any questions and... Um, I saw things differently even then. I thought that asking questions was important and understanding what you were doing and the reasons you were doing it was were important. And I also wanted to be sort of recognised for who I was and what my strengths were. And I didn't see any of that going on. And so when I reflected uh, later in life on, on that, and when I came to do the PhD, you know, that was something that I had had strong in my mind, that that was not part of sport back then. It was a very autocratic coach, who is a, it's a cliche, but it really was his way or the highway, you know? And uh, I guess back then I chose the highway because I just didn't want to do it his way. I didn't want to be running to the ground around the streets and do lots of physical training without ever touching a football. I, I wanted to just play football, you know, I wanted, I wanted the ball. And uh, there wasn't a lot of that going on in, in the sort of uh, mid to late eighties at Watford youth. So, um, Lots of things within there, but uh, I, I, the, we both actually, uh, as we agreed or just uh, found out before we started recording, that we support the same uh, Premier League uh, or champ, what to say, the Premier League uh, team, the Reds of Liverpool. And yeah. the little story in my head says, well, back in those days, I used to support. Liverpool in the first, Watford in the second, Wrexham in the third, and Torquay, oh. because I knew the, the the owner, in the fourth division, as it was called back in those days. And so I have a strong thought in my mind, which is Watford and Liverpool, John Toshak. There was always a, a link between the two. John Barnes. John Barnes. Well, before yeah. it, wasn't it Toshak? Didn't Toshak leave no, Liverpool to, to manage? Uh, uh, he went to Swansea, I think, to manage Toshak. Oh, Swansea, that's it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, John Barnes was at Liverpool, and then uh, was at Watford, and then went to Liverpool. Yeah, he was like my hero growing up. Hmm. Uh, before that, when I was really young, it was Dalgleish. But hmm, then uh, then John Barnes was really my hero, yeah. 
Mm, I, nice. I remember being away one year and um, my girlfriend wrote to me and said that she'd met John, Glam- John Barnes and danced with him in a, in a nightclub. And I wasn't sure which side I was more jealous of. <laughs> Her or him. Yeah, and, yeah he it. really was my hero. Yeah, he was right. phenomenal. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. So um, in your book, you start off by laying out the premise that empathic leadership is interesting because it leads, or it's amongst other things anyway, uh, it's helpful in relationship management, building trust and communications. So in this, it's super relevant to business and life, not just in sports. I'm, I'm still interested though in the nuance between Whereas you mentioned before this notion of the emotions, because you you talk about um, uh, you know the emotional aspect of of business that you call about the emotional cauldron, in fact, of of sports. So, to what extent it's applicable and not applicable in life? If I start with this idea, you talk about emotions, but the emotional cauldron seemed to be a less appropriate term for business. Yeah, I think I think that sport seems to heighten everything. So if you look at something like transparency compared to business, there's more transparency with sport because the performance is laid out there every week for the customers or fans to watch. It's dissected to death by media pundits, people in the pub. It's the whole business. Every, everyone from top to bottom is analysed. You know, fans will know who the CEO is. They will know who the chairman is. They'll know who the coaches are, you know, and, and every part of their lives is looked at and even the personal lives of these people and players and everything. So it's a very transparent in- industry. So I think it tests that more than any other industry could could test. Um, the emotional cauldron part is with, again, with performance, you've got a sports team will perform once, maybe twice a week, typically sports teams. Um, and so th- there's that reaction to results is going to have a massive effect to the, the emotions in the climate at the club. So, you know, if you lose two games in a row, the mood in the, in the whole environment is going to be very different to if you're on a, on a strong winning run. And that affects everything. So one of the, the biggest jobs of the leader then, the head coach, is to turn that round. You know, how do you get these people um, believing and enjoying their work again? Because we do whatever work we do, whether it's business or or football or any sport we do our best work when we're enjoying ourselves and and we feel happy about it so I think that's become a huge part of as sports become um more intense if you like and um those react those reactions to performances and personal performances as well that's something that the coach has become more um more pressured to get involved with and, and concentrate on because it just, I think it's just understood to be a bigger part of his job now. I was wondering in, in how you talk about that, to what extent things have changed in a way that has made empathic leadership more appropriate. So for me, the way I would lead into that contextually would be to say, it's my observation that in sports in particular, we've now brought in so much money into it it's real commerce back in the 80s you know trevor francis one million pounds right <clears throat> now we're talking about hundreds of millions salar or whoever yeah. and um and then there's also the arrival of data 
Mm. where where the not only is everything scrutinized everything can be tracked how many passes you made to your left foot in the game how many passes were accurate how many you fucked up on and and all that so the the data which tends to be an unemotional idea mm. has maybe with also the addition to the fact that it's a lot of money the mediatic uh, attention which you know has high hyper evaluating and analyzing everything like you were mm. saying how all of this has contributed to the need as in it's a reaction to to have more empathic leadership well I, I, we have seen an enormous um, increase in the amount of data collection and and, and and analysis and i think the biggest thing missing from that is emotions they're very difficult to quantify so that's where i see empathic leadership coming in is that you, you can't just have somebody counting things like emotions on the sideline you can't you can't put it into numbers so there's lots of uh, programs being uh, developed software on athletes to be able to sort of judge what sort of level they're playing at and everything but you they usually just focus on all these different statistics and emotions just doesn't come into it so there's a there's a massive variable there that's affecting performance that's not um, recorded and I think I call, I don't know whether I call it in the book, but I've called it in articles, empathy is um, us as humans, our, our greatest form of data collection. It's it's the most human form of data collection. It's how we've always collected data on other people. It's by observing, getting to know, getting to understand, and then being able to predict once we've got that information. We can predict behaviour, we can predict performance, we can allocate tasks appropriately, we can... Um, we can use the information that we connect uh, that we collect through empathy in just as greater, if not greater ways than, than the statistics collected on the sideline by um, more computer literate people. That was one of the first sentences that raised my eyebrows as I was reading the book is empathy is knowledge. That was the first that I'd ever come across that specific framing and, and this idea of data collection for sure but do you find do you know of any good way to measure empathy i think that's really difficult there are some uh, sort of scales that are used to measure empathy they're usually sort of self-reporting or um people who work in businesses have had uh, people who work beneath them rate the leader for empathy but it's a very difficult thing to quantify um as much as we're talking about knowledge and data, yeah, it's yeah. not you can say, well, you got a hundred out of a hundred in history, no. you know, or, or you know, sixty-two percent of how much uh, he's feeling this. Yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing to measure in that is probably perceived empathy. So by going to the people that are being led or that are in teams in sport, for example, and I think I think they've got to be the target of of this understanding of how empathic the leader is because they should be, they should be feeling that empathy. They should be aware of it. They should be seeing it on a daily basis. Like head coaches, I talked about transparency earlier. It's not just um, the fan that's watching everything. These athletes watch everything a coach does. So when a head coach is dealing with another athlete, the rest of the squad are not ignoring that situation. If there's a personal problem going on, maybe with an athlete and the coach is dealing with it, every other athlete will be 
keeping an eye on that situation as much as possible. And that information they'll use, they'll think, oh, when so-and-so had that going on, he was really good with him or she was really good with, with, with her. So I know I can go to them with my issue and that it's not going to come back on me in a negative way. So if a coach has been seen to say to a player, a lot, I know you're going through this personal situation, a divorce or something like that, I'm not going to drop you from the team. Come to me and talk about anything you need to talk about and we'll just carry on as normal. Then the next person that comes along who's going through something similar can go to the coach with the confidence that they're not going to react negatively and they're going to be there to support them. So that sort of observation and that perception of the coach is an empathic guy. He understands, you know, he, 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 um, he wants to know what's going on with us and how we feel about it. And that's a perception of empathy. And I think that's really powerful. So I think that the best people to measure it would be the people being led. But I don't know how you quantify it. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I mean, you, you could get them to rate it. It, it. That's what, that's what the scales do at the moment. You can get just ratings from different people about different leaders, but um, it's just those everyday experiences. And it's, it's about being empathic the whole time as well. It's no good a coach coming in and saying, oh, right, I'm going to be an empathic leader now. I've read this book. However good the book is, <laughs> um, it's got to be something that is part of who they are. So it's, it, it's evident in all of their behaviour. It runs through their blood. So when they're observing how the coach treats other people, whether it's it might not even be other athletes. It might be the opposition, the respect that they show the opposition. That indicates what sort of person is leading them. And I had coaches, one of the coaches that I interviewed for the research that I did, um, she said that their main rivals, um, they used to have really aggressive encounters, the two teams. And she thinks that that filtered down from the aggressive sort of relationship she had with the opposition coach and that they were always arguing over decisions on the touchline and things like that. And one day, maybe because she'd got a bit older, she realised that, you know, is this the best thing for my players? Because they're reacting from what they see me do. And so she started to sort of understand the perspective of the opposing coach and realised, obviously, that they're in the same boat as her. They're doing the same job as her. And they started to get on a lot better. And she found that the rest of the, the team's performances stopped being so aggressive. But there was no less effort there. The effort to win was still there, but it was more controlled. And it, it was um, a positive experience for her. So everything these coaches do, as I say, is being observed. And uh, the way they are with other people, whether it's opposition, press, um, other staff, it really makes a, an impact on the athlete and what sort of performance and um, behavior you're going to get out of them. Yeah. This notion of the emotional element and you can use emotions and stress to good and bad. And I'd certainly be interested to know how she approached that um, antipathy that she had with the other coach. Cause I think there's, there's a lot to be learned in, in how to you know draw down confrontation replace the ego and i would typically say but that's a sexist remark that women are are more aware of that idea than men mm. where the ego takes a preponderant position but 
One of the things I want to push back on, Peter, is this notion of perception of empathy. I tend to, in my, my work, think of emission and reception, but not necessarily emitting anything, because I, I believe that empathy is merely understanding and doesn't necessarily mean showing the understanding. Mm. That's what comes afterwards. So, the, yeah. for example, I might see you playing on the pitch and, and I see... You, you mentioned, uh, um, let's say, a divorce or a bad relationship. And I might talk to the other person because I th that's what I believe is the right empathic uh, action, the action that should follow. But the player might not see it. Mm. Uh, it may never be revealed. So this notion of perception uh, suggests that there must be an empathic action, but sometimes no action is what's requested or just listening, which is, is hard to observe, if you will, because when you're the speaker, you, you don't realize you're just being listened to almost. You, you sort of get into your me, me, me mode. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Empathy is just about the understanding stage. And the way you react to that understanding is totally up to you. You know, you can be an empathic person who uses that information in a very negative way, a very antisocial way. Um, indeed, one of the ways that we, in which a head coach can use empathy is to understand the opposition coach, to understand the opposition players, and then use that to strategize against them. So um, with the perception and, and not displaying it, I think these things always come out. I mean, it, you're right. Sometimes the display of behavior might, or, or the behavior might be entirely absent. So a coach might understand what a player is going through. And decide not to act at all. And then your question obviously is alluding to, does the player know that the coach has understood him? But I think there's always going to be a, a moment where there's some sort of recognition that that understanding has taken place um, in, in something they do, you know. And if things like that, there might be there might be things that don't come out ever, but I think there'll always be other examples more to do with the performance side of the game where the coach will understand what's going on. And that's always going to be coming out because the, the, the relationship and the communication is, is dynamic between a coach and a player about what's going on with their performance, whether it's half-time, full-time or training the following week. There's going to be discussions about performance. And I think empathy will come out in that conversation because it will soon become apparent to the athlete whether the coach really gets them and understands, you know, what motivates them, uh, why they might be feeling a bit down about the way they're playing or, or, or maybe any sort of issue or problem they're having, how the coach reacts to that. So I think there are always opportunities for the athlete to, to judge whether that coach is being empathic towards them. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you want to be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with a purpose and a passion, whether you're 25, 85, or any age in between. Gain actionable financial and mindset tips from your favorite authors, podcasters, and influencers to help you reach that exciting next chapter. Listen now and start building your path to financial freedom and reframing what retirement can mean to you. This is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. It's. It feels like we we often need to find proxies for empathy, not mm. specific to the word. For example, uh, the consequence of my empathy is a performance. And another element that seems interesting, uh, which is hard for the individual to observe, 
but as a group, when a coach knows how to speak differently to Peter than to Paul, yeah, than sure. to Mary, and and I I shift my communication style, but Peter may not see that I've shifted. All mm. he knows is he's talking to me in the right way, but he might not even consider that as empathy, if you see what I mean, because it's yeah. sort of like petting a dog in the right way. Oh, well, he's petting mm. me the right way. That's what I need. That's how it is. If yeah. he's not doing that, oh, he pisses me off. He's rubbing my fur the wrong way. Well, ah, and he walks away. But he doesn't necessarily associate the right petting with empathy. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's there's very few athletes, in fact, that actually consider the word empathy. In Maybe more recently they do because it's become more of a part of the discourse, but I'm sure there are plenty that don't. So I think then it just comes down to a sort of an overall feeling. Just how does this coach make me feel? You know, I'm sure, I'm sure we've all had anybody that's been involved in sport have had encounters with coaches that we think, I really like playing for this this person. You know, they they make me feel good. I, I enjoy when I, when I turn up each day, I'm glad to be in his presence, you know. And other people that you think, I, I wouldn't really care if I didn't spend time with this person again. You know, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel that I want to put in more effort for the team. He's, he's just not noticing me he's not approachable there's just just the way he makes me feel so it might not be um understood explicitly in the form of empathy but i think it's understood sort of consciously or even subconsciously in the way somebody makes you feel and just circling back to another point uh, you know you you end up showing up a lot of professionals paid to show up so as a you know pundit or a fan we say oh look how much we pay this person and we now that so much money in it, you know, there's well, they're being paid. They should show up, but it, it turns out that it's a great example of just money, not just get you know performance. You obviously have some players who are just worth that money, if you will, or at least perception-wise, thanks to the television uh, licenses mm-hmm. or whatever. But um, one of the things we can transfer in business is that motivation ultimately isn't through money it's going to be through doing things legacy the the relationships that everything that helps with the empathy and and one of the topics that's of critical importance to me in my work where i work with a lot of businesses more than sports like you is um this notion of mattering that you bring up in the book this idea of having a purpose and so you got two teams two coaches and both teams say well what are we here for? What's our purpose? And our purpose is to win. And we're going to set a goal of winning the championship or winning this or whatever, beating the uh, arrivals of Merseyside. How, how do you see the word or the notion of purpose and empathy meeting together? And how specifically would that have a role? In other words, beyond just winning in sports. I think that's another thing that the head coach has got to understand about each athlete. You know, what is their personal, unique motivation for being there and for performing in every game? And I think that's an additional pressure that's um, increased in recent years because each athlete not only has the team to worry about, their own performance to worry about, but they start to have their own brand to worry about as well. So there'll, there'll be athletes out there who are more concerned with their own brand and how that's doing 
maybe their Instagram their Instagram page. Yeah, maybe even earning more money out of their own brand than they are out of playing. You know, from sponsorships and and maybe thinking about their subsequent career once they're finished in the sport. You know, what things are best for that. So I think that's you know something extra for coaches to understand these days. But I had an example of that. One coach told me that his team had lost a game, but one of his players had scored a couple of goals and gone straight back home and put it on social media about how wonderful hat trick. he scored that. a hat trick, right? Yeah, right. And um, and he had to have a conversation to say, you know, can you see? Can you not see how this looks to the other players? You know, how are they going to be thinking about you now, and how it sort of just. Um, brings the whole squad down to see that sort of behavior that you're not there for them. You're there for yourself and that's it. So I think it's a, a, something that's become more and more prevalent for the coach to understand. Yeah. In the building of trust, which is um, necessary in order to establish safe spaces and ability to be vulnerable and, and such. Uh, I've long maintained that trust is not based on competency. It is based on personal attitude and relationships. And in business, it's almost a dirty word, this idea of personal. You know, we're here for professional reasons. We, yeah. You know, you got a job to do. And, and uh, you know, what, what happens at home stays at home. Uh, not in Vegas, but at home. And, and, but in, in my, I've had a, a number of sports people on my podcast specifically play rugby because that's my sport in general <clears throat> excuse me and um i had lee mears for example the um the lions player captain of england yeah. and captain of bath i think um talking about uh, this notion of of captaining leading in those three different areas professional team national team and then lions which mm. is a whole nother category of of transnational pride but the the notion of of trust and and i in my little mind, I have this idea that because I'm throwing my body on the line, that ups the ante about trust amongst one another, where the more physical the, the giving in a team orient, like ice hockey, you have a lot of references to ice hockey, which I absolutely adore as a sport as well, where, whereas other sports, it's more about, you know, like a relay relay well you're being physical but it's not like you're giving your body you're just running your course you're transferring the baton but there's not like you're laying your body down at risk of peril kind of mm. feeling i was wondering what you think about that yeah i suppose uh, that is a is something additional for the, the athletes to be concerned about and if they don't feel that it gives them a, a bigger reason i guess to um expect empathy and to be able to perceive empathy not only in their head coach but in the the team around them um and in my book i talk about a lot of the work that head coaches do to improve the empathy in teams so that players feel it from each other as well so uh, you mentioned trust i think i think trust and empathy both come from getting to know people better and that's one of the things the coaches aim to do is to make sure that the, each athlete's well introduced to his teammates and they do certain things like um, ask for sort of them to share biographical stories about where they came from a lot. I mean, sports are a real great testing ground in the, 
as an industry, it's it's full of people from different cultures and countries working together. Um, I don't think there's probably few industries that can compete in that way. And so it, it becomes even more important for these guys to understand the lives that they've had up to that point, um, the hardships they've gone through, and, what, and that gives them an idea of what it means to that athlete to be where they are. And once we get to know and understand each other and the, share, the sharing of personal information as well, that increases trust because if we see somebody is willing to open themselves up and tell us things about their lives, perhaps things that um, have upset them in the past or obstacles they've had to get over, then that opens up a channel of trust, I think, and it brings people closer together. I think it makes it makes you feel more... I think the closest thing you can, you can think of is a family. So in most families, you know, you trust each other because you know each other inside out. It's not only trust that brings, it's uh, it's being able to predict behaviour and emotions as well. So the greater you know somebody, if you walk into a room with your, your sibling, for example, and there's a certain atmosphere in that room, you'll know how your sibling is feeling. And that's the kind of level of, of uh, knowledge about other athletes that a coach wants to bring these days is is to really be able to predict how situations are going to make their colleagues feel and if they can do that and share be happy to sort of share their lives with each other then that brings them closer together and and team cohesion is obviously a very important thing to coaches this notion of cultural difference is really interesting and going back to the interview i had with lee the there's there's that multiculturality that you're bound to have in a professional team because they can come from anywhere or there are certain national elements and you can only have four people from outside or whatever depending on the on the sport but that's multicultural at the national level mm. it tends to be less multicultural i mean you can come from different places there's there's different elements and then you're flying the flag together and then he describes the story of being on two Lions tours and how one was a flop and one was a success. And he attributed the success, and I want to get it more or less right, Lee, if you're listening, is um, the, the captain uh, in, in, imposed some time off the pitch and, and said, you, you have this time, and this is time just to get together. You have a budget for beer, and my door is always open. And, and so this notion of getting to know you, getting to understand, make bridges with you, even if you're Welsh and I'm English or Scott and Irish, whatever, what, uh, what will unite you will be that personal bonding. And so that's going to be true in the Lions game. And it's going to be true at the club, less, a little less so, although in a different way anyway, at the mm. national level because you, you, you all come from the same country, at least, um, but you'll all have different paths to there, surely, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, so in some sports, um, lacrosse, for example, in lacrosse, Great because sport. it's, yeah, because it's a smaller sport, you know, the number of sort of lacrosse competitors at a youth age, et cetera, uh, are not as great as something like football, for example. So a lot of the people competing internationally at lacrosse know each other from when they were kids. They've been playing together right. since then. And uh, the head coach of the lacrosse team told me that that is a really important part of his, of, of his team cohesion because these guys, they're like family. They've known each other since they were so young that it's like being a family. Um, I, th 
I had an uh, international rugby coach tell me something similar as well about he was uh, coaching a, a smaller international team and a lot of these guys knew each other. They knew members of the families of other people, you know. So it, it really brought them closer together. And no matter how long there was between um, international fixtures, as soon as they got back together again, they were just really tight, like they hadn't been away from each other because they just, like you say, they had so much in common and, and that included relationships. So I think that can have a huge effect. And that's the, that closeness is what head coaches of, of teams with multicultures and multinationalities in is aiming for, that sort of tight community. Hmm. And that brings alignment. It brings a lot of things, you know. But more than anything, that, that understanding of the person that's next to you, fighting with you. And that also crosses a, to communication that you mentioned earlier about the coach knowing how to talk to certain players. That is the same for athletes themselves. You know, they, they see someone might not be having a great game. There'll be different ways through knowing them that they know they should talk to that person to try and get them back in in a positive mindset. Makes me think of uh, feedback, <clears throat> which coaches, of course, have to do a lot of. And I recently did a session with about 30 doctors uh, about feedback and and the link with empathy in feedback. How How is empathy and feedback necessary or what's the play within the sports field? Feedback from the coaches. I did, I did, uh, I spoke to coaches a lot about this. Um, firstly, about the mode of, of feedback. You know, how do we, how do we meet when we're giving feedback to individual athletes? For example, do we do it via text? <laughs> do we do it on the phone? Do we do it on Zoom? Do we do it in person? And all of them want to do it in person primarily. If it's possible, they want to be in the room with the person. So when they're giving the feedback, the coach can take knowledge from the reaction to the feedback primarily. So not just by what the athlete says, but how you react, how they react. So they might be reacting by sitting there tapping their foot, which you wouldn't see on a Zoom call, for example. They might be reacting by chewing their fingernails or, or shaking their head in disagreement at what's being said. But the the communication with feedback as well. Another thing that the head coaches um, got across to me was it should be a real dynamic communication. It shouldn't be just, I'm talking to you, I'm giving you feedback. It should be more of a discussion about what's going on. And so there should be some sort of understanding of, of where that performance was at between the two people, not one person giving their view. And that understanding comes through a more empathic communication. So you can use techniques like um, asking the other person how they think. Um, by asking the other person what they've heard the coach say. So the coach says to the athlete, from what I've just said, how do you understand how I feel about your performance? Can you, and so almost asking them to repeat back to, to make sure that, yeah, to make sure that it's been understood. Um, and so that's a really important part of feedback. I think each coach gets to learn as well how sort of hard or harsh they can be with feedback with certain athletes and how others might need a little bit more, you know, confidence boost with their feedback. So it's going to be tailored uniquely. And the, the more the coach gets to know each individual athlete, 
the better and more accurately you can tailor that. So as we wind down, I wanted to uh, ask, what are the downsides of empathic leadership? The the context within which I, I put this is that it feels for me that there's a big swing that's happened away from the autocratic coach, the autocratic CEO, and we should do what you want. We should do what you feel as opposed to what we need um, or we as a team and the individual's uh, presence, the individuality of our society, not to mention ego and narcissism which we're a little bit referring to about, you know, the, 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 the woman who went and ranted on about her hat trick. Uh, what, what are the downsides? Do you see downsides? Cause I mean, if you read your book, everything is good about empathic leadership. Yeah. I mean, and, and I understand that, but I would mm. like, for, and you do talk a little bit about the, the downsides, but how, how and when is empathic leadership going to go wrong? Well, this is something I was cautious not to um, focus on too much when doing my literature review for the PhD, etc. You've got to make sure that you look into everything, you know. So the downsides of empathy that are discussed in the literature, particularly, are things like burnout. If a, if, if a leader is trying to understand the emotional, the emotions, the lives of all the people that they're leading, and in sport, this is this is a big task because. Unlike 20 years ago or, or so, the squad sizes are bigger, the staff sizes are bigger, there's more media people to understand, there's more people in the business in general to understand. So if they're taking on all these people's lives and emotions, is that going to be too draining for them to cope with? Um, so I put this to the, the head coaches and all of them came back with the same answer, that they're sharing in so many positive experiences with their athletes that that is a positive impact on them and the the draining aspect doesn't come into it it they all they a few of them said that the burnout came from maybe working too many hours or not spending enough time at home things like that but it wasn't ever because of the emotional demands put on them by being a more empathic leader well of course there is the the notion of the empath who feels too much of everybody everywhere and that can be a burden for example in the in the, hosp the hospital arena sure, yeah. or in other areas so that that certainly is something I, mean, I i can see how it can be a positive yet when when performance isn't there and that stress comes in mm. and, and you say oh i've got to be empathic um there's there's always this pressure with time being the factor in the middle because I, the way i see it empathic leadership needs more time yeah i think that's that sort of situation is a reminder of what empathy is it's about understanding so we understand in that situation where things are going badly the job of the coach the empathic coach is to understand what those athletes need to turn it around so it's not about you know feeling sorry for them or that that it's Sympathy. not about compassion it's about understanding the true needs for those athletes to turn their performances around and it might be a bit of compassion it might be a kick up the backside it it could be anything i had one coach who, who just called training off after about 10 10 minutes one day because he's he, his athletes weren't on the ball and he sent them all home and that was just like a real um a mark of how he felt in just one piece of behavior 
and the athletes came in the next day in a completely different mood. So he un- he clearly understood that they needed a real sort of shock. And so he, an empathic coach will understand what the athletes need. I think that's what's the most important thing to remember. Yeah, like the reset. Yeah. I want to finish on, on another topic because that's something that I thought particularly insightful was the notion that many coaches you write in the book say that the hardest part of their job is actually dealing with the bosses. Mm. And I talk about this a lot in empathic cultures where the governance element, ownership, if you at the very top don't have empathy, but you are expected to have empathy down below, that dissonance, that disassociation is is, uh, toxic. Yeah, certainly, yeah. I think I gave some examples in my book of where the athletes actually saw what was going on above the coach. And that's probably having a negative effect on their commitment to the organisation as a whole. They might feel committed to the coach and the team, but if they see people above behaving badly and not in the interest of the organisation or or not demonstrating any empathy towards people below them in the organisation, including the athletes, then that's going to have a negative impact on them and their performance. I think, I don't think business... That you, when you go above the, the playing side of, of a sports organisation, you're talking about more of a, of a, a typical business. And I don't think business as a whole is um, the greatest sort of uh, area of empathy, is it? In fact, the word business often gets used as an excuse not to be empathic or compassionate, doesn't it? You know, exactly. oh, it's business. That's why I've just treated you like, like a, you know. Don't, don't um, take this personally, but you're a piece yeah, of shit. It, exactly. It's business. So... That, but that to me says that business has the greatest opportunity with empathy. There's the biggest gap there of, of anything, of any industry. If, if people are, are working in, in business like that and treating people like numbers rather than human beings, then that presents the greatest area of potential, I think. I know there was a study in about 2014 um, of different... Um, academic uh, institutes or houses in the university and I think business came out about bottom for um, empathy and understanding of the importance of empathy Um, I think economics out of all the business schools were the worst well that's a an indictment of folks from my business school INSEAD yeah (laughs) Uh, I would love to have that study, but um, last uh, point then with that uh, notion of governance and ownership. And you mentioned this and it was the growing distance between fans and athletes, which is kind of odd at some level to the extent that it's very obvious when you're on the pitch, how quickly you're being booed, how quickly they're cheering for you. Yet this gap, and I suspect that same sort of gap has been happening with the professionalization and media and money going into professional sports, how there's a gap also between the players and the owners, because the owners are probably very wealthy, you know, could be Russian, could be American, whatever. And and they're not really in contact with the players. It's very similar in our political system in the UK as well. There seems to be a huge gap between what the leaders at the top how they live their lives and how other people live theirs. And you're right, you've got owners of professional football clubs arriving by helicopter, coming in from a different country often just for the game. Whereas if you go back a few decades, athletes, fans, 
possibly people working above in the club, but maybe even owners might have seen each other in cars or on the bus on the way in. So it has been a, a real big part of it. And I think social media has probably offered a little bit of a, a, a an opportunity for engagement with players and, and people above in the club. But, you know, again, that's that's not the same as meeting people in person and getting to know them and being able to understand each other's worlds. It makes me think of uh, how mom and pop shops or maybe clubs in the fourth division back in our days, you know, um, how the owner would be on the sidelines, would be going to trainings and, mm. and, and would be having breaking bread with them. Uh, you also have entrepreneurs in the business world where they're very much involved and it's their skin and blood and, and their livelihood, but it's also them. They're in it. And then all of a sudden you, you sort of go up a few levels and it becomes a corporation system a country you know we've got these bigger things that and then we just have too many layers in between us or just very different ways we roll peter it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you this i i absolutely didn't cover all my questions are um but uh, i hope it has stimulated some of our listeners to go and get your book empathic leadership which is in hardcover and in paperback here in hard in paper lessons from elite sport by dr peter sear by rutledge publisher um any closing words and how can people should they wish to hire you get in touch with you follow what you're up to writing and reading um, go listen to your courses. I, what is the best? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as Dr. Peter Sear. That's S-E-A-R. Um, you can find me at empathicminds.org as well. And, yeah, I'd like to help leaders in any industry using what I've learned from psychology and sport um, and any organisations who, who think there's a gap there that empathy offers potential for. Because I think, um, you know, I don't need to persuade you, but it offers a huge amount to any company who wants to improve their performance. And what's unique, Peter, about your offer, as opposed to usually being in like an athlete who's come in and, you know, this is how I did and performance management and da 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 da. You are really actually at the core of the management principle within sports. So that's why I'd highly recommend anybody get in touch with you. Peter, many, many thanks. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thanks. So a really heartfelt thanks for listening to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. As ever, ratings and reviews are the real currency of podcasts. And if you're really inspired, I'm accepting donations on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You'll find the show notes with over 2,100 blog posts on MinterDial.com on topics ranging from leadership to branding, tech, and marketing tips. Check out my documentary film and books, including the last one, the second edition of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence that came out in April 2023. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Still I won't tell the lie
anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate I'm a convinced man, competition's innate A convinced man, in the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle with deceit Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me Precipitating the danger To feel free Trust in my reason And let me show you why I'm a convinced man Practicing my lines I'm a convinced man Finds a convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.